you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us as we examine what you would want us to see from this chapter and help us to understand and that the Spirit leads us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Chronicles 13 at verse 1. Uh, we just had Rehoboam die. He died after a 17-year reign, and his son Abijah takes over reigning. That's where we're going to start out. Uh, in Second Chronicles, we have an entire chapter about Abijah. One chapter for his whole three-year reign. In Second, in First Kings chapter 15, we have eight verses about his reign. The eight verses boil down to he was an evil king. That's about all it says about him. And we're going to see some, a different picture of him, but we want to remember that the summation of his reign is that he is an evil king in spite of what we're going to read here, and we're going to draw some conclusions from, from that as we read this, this chapter. So starting out at verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam began Abijah to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel the Gibeah, of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah set to battle in array with an array of valiant men of war, even 400,000 chosen men. Jeroboam also set to battle in array against him 800,000 chosen men, being mighty men of valor. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. Remember the kingdom of Israel has been split under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And we see here that Rehoboam is dead. He's the one that caused the split because he told the people when they said, reduce our taxes, he basically said, go jump in a lake. <laughs> I'm going to raise taxes. And the people said, fine, we are no longer going to be your servants. We are leaving and 10 tribes left. And Jeroboam and Rehoboam fought for the entire time that he lived. Abijah is going to rise up against him. And in the process of Jeroboam's life we looked at last week, just shortly before he died, Shishak of the Pharaoh of Egypt came against him and took away most of his strong cities. So he's already been weakened by people. But we did read at the end of Jeroboam's life, even the uh, Rehoboam's life, even though he was considered an evil king, he and his people leaders repented and God says fine you're not going to be taken over but you will be made uh, subject to uh, Pharaoh you're going to pay taxes you're going to be his servants and this is the nation that Abijah takes over and he gets ready to go to war with Jeroboam and it's an amazing when you look at these numbers that these two nations put together Jeroboam puts together 400,000 soldiers. That's a lot. That's a lot, even in today's world. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a really large army for that day. Abijah puts together 200,000 fighters from just two tribes who had been beat up by Pharaoh and been beat up by Jeroboam, and he still was able to raise an army of 200,000 people. Four. What's that? Four hundred thousand. Four. What did I say? Two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. 
Oh, okay, 400,000 and 800,000. I'm thinking two to, two, to, two to one. All right, sorry about that. <laughs> so, yeah, 800,000, which is even worse than 400,000. That's a big army. All right, and against 400,000, and 400,000 is still a very large army, but going against 800,000 is, is you know, this is a lot of people coming, coming to battle. And, you know, and he doesn't have but two tribes to draw this, this number from. And it's been defeated in the past. And here they are getting ready to have over a million people getting ready for battle between the two of them. 1.2 million men between the two sides. This is quite a battle that's going to be, be pursuing a lot of people have the chance of dying and not returning home. And you know, when we read these things about these battles, we kind of forget that these battles do represent real people whose lives are going to be destroyed. Now. Just like today, just like today you know, when we go to battle today, there are real people behind these battles that many of them are going to die. And even if you don't die, people get maimed. And in those days, lots of people got maimed because swords were swinging around and rocks were flying and arrows were flying. And, and if you got injured, you were quite likely to get sick because they didn't have antibiotics and all these other things that were going to help you. So you have 1.2 million people between these two nations armed for war. All because of the consequence of Rehoboam not listening to godly counsel and good counsel and rejecting good counsel. And what am I saying there? Sin has consequences. And in this case, huge consequences. Up to 1.2 you know, million people are going to have consequences because of the sin of Rehoboam not listening to godly counsel. And so we see this process going in. Verse 4, And Abijah stood up upon Mount Zimmerim, which was a mount in Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over to Israel to David forever, even to him and his sons, by covenant of, by a covenant of salt? Huh? When did that we'll come back in just a moment. <laughs> we'll come back to that in just a moment. Okay. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against the Lord. And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord that the, in the hand of the sons of David? And you be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves from which Jeroboam made your gods. Have you not cast out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, and have made you priest after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whosoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest for them that are no gods. But as for us, we have the Lord our God, and we have not forsaken him, and the prophets which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their, their business. 
And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense and showbread. Also set them they in order upon the pure table and upon the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof and burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. I'm going to stop there. You look at this statement and it sounds like Jeroboam, or excuse me, Abijah is a very godly man. The sad thing is, it's all window dressing. All right? He's saying, we're doing all these things. We're following God, but God's testimony of them is, you're not, you're not following me. Your hearts are not following me. So he stands up on this mount in, in Ephraim, which is somewhere north of Jerusalem. And he is standing on the mountain, and I don't know how his voice is heard by everybody, you know, a megaphone, something, I don't know, but he's able to make his voice heard. And he calls out to the Israelites, and he's reminding them about God. And remember, what was the first thing Jeroboam did when he took over the northern kingdom? He decided that he could not have Israel, the northern kingdom, worshiping God, because that would mean they'd have to go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship God, and they might just get convicted enough to want to return back and become a single nation again. So he instituted golden calf worship. And he made two golden calves. One in Dan, the northernmost area, and one on the, northern, on the southern border so that everybody going down to Jerusalem would have to go buy this golden calf and they would be calling, you don't have to go out to Jerusalem, just come here and worship. We're going to save you. We're going to save you another day's worth of trip. Just come here and worship. Sounds really good to them. You know, I don't have to go another day, you know, day there, day, day back and a day down there. I get to save three days because here I am. So all of this sounds really good to them. And he says, ought you not to know that the Lord God made David king. All right. So he's, re he's remembering the covenant. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because here he talks about a covenant of salt. The only problem is we don't really know what the covenant of salt means. It's spoken about three times in the scriptures. The first time that you're going to read about the covenant of salt is in Leviticus 2.13 that salt is added to all the offerings as a covenant. Uh, 2.13. Am I not speaking right today, probably? Okay. Leviticus 2.13. All right. The next time is in Numbers 18.19, and again, it refers to the covenant of the offerings. God said that all the offerings were to have salt added to them. And then this one here in this verse talks about the covenant of salt. I spent most of my study time trying to figure out what the covenant of salt is. The conclusion is nobody knows. So I'm going to give you the best guess of what I can come up with, what I found. First off, we look at what does salt mean in, this, in the scriptures. And we are called the salt of the earth. We are to add flavor to life by bringing God into it. Salt increases thirst for God. It increases the um, 
cleansing. Salt, salt is a cleansing in the wound, and it is used to preserve and is used in sacrifice. I think this is pretty much what's going on in the covenant of salt. God is saying, I want salt. I want your offerings to bring flavor. I want them to bring preservation. In the Arab world, salt also represents hospitality. When you were to bring somebody into your home and feed them, they expected things to be savory and tasty and be salted. And if you remember back in there, even up to the Roman days, salt was so precious that they actually used salt to pay people, which becomes our statement, he's not worth his salt, means he wasn't worth the, what the payment they gave him. All right. So and I can't imagine the salt was that valuable because we have salt everywhere in our day and we sell salt for nothing. But in their day, salt was a precious commodity. And uh, so we have here, he says, this offering, and it also talks about the longevity, you know, the, the perpetuity that salt brings because it is a preservative. So all of this brings down to David was giving a everlasting kingdom. And God said, I'm not going to ever have the end of this. And this is the only place where we're told that there was a covenant of salt between David and God. I would think for those of you that are learning to do word studies, do a, do a study on salt. Because this is where I came up with the whole thing is I started looking where salt was used. I didn't do every verse where salt was used. But I do know that we are the salt of the, of the world. We, we do know what salt is in the scripture. So as I started piecing this together, I do believe that it's talking about the preservation, the perpetuality of it, uh, that God is going to keep his, his side of it no matter what. One of these days I may decide I'm going to have time to do an entire study on salt. <laughs> but I do know that you know, as salt, we are to create thirst, we are to preserve, we're to bring the things back to life or keep things alive, as the case might be, and that the Holy Spirit acts as salt within, within us. So here I will say that I believe he's talking there about God's promise that David was going to be king forever. And remember, the promise to David was unconditional, just as the covenant with Abraham was. Most of God's covenants are not unconditional. He says, if you do this, then I will do this. The covenant with Abraham was no condition on it. Abraham you're, you will be blessed. Your people will number as the stars of the sky in the sand of the sand. sand. You, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And it has nothing to do with, with what they do or don't do. David's covenant was the same thing. David, your descendants will sit on the throne forever. No, David, if you obey me, that's going to happen. David, if you, you know... If you disobey, things are going to happen. Now, there are consequences when he disobeyed. Solomon was told, if you obey and stay consistent, then your, then your reign will go on. He was not. But another son of David will then reign for, for the period throughout. Jeroboam was told, if you follow me, you will have a perpetual reign. Jeroboam did not follow God and did not have a perpetual reign. So we see most of God's con covenants are conditional. For us as Christians, we have an unconditional covenant. Come to me and I will make you my children. You will be covered in the blood of Christ. You will be made righteous. 
I am glad that our salvation is unconditional. It's not, if, you know, hey, Ralph, if you keep my word and you do what I say, then you're going to go to heaven. I'd be in trouble. And so would everybody else in this room if we had a conditional salvation. But it is an unconditional. I'm glad it's, there are very few unconditionals, but this is another one of those unconditionals. And here he's saying, God promised David perpetually a kingdom. And you, Jeroboam, and you Israelites have rejected the rightful king. I don't know if I'm reading into it that he says that you will have one that will reign eternally as if we comprehend that it was Jesus, but they're comprehending that the reign will be just perpetual. They decided, they, well, it is perpetual because Jesus was the last king. Because he is still alive, he is still the perpetual king. So yes, in both ways. Yes, it is a prophecy of Jesus being the king for the rest of time. Yes, they understood it to be, you're going to have a new son every, every generation that's going to sit on the throne. Jesus came as the last person who could prove that he was of the line of David. Because when Jerusalem fell... All the genealogical records were destroyed because they were in the temple. And this is why the genealogy record, the genealogical records in the New Testament are so important because they prove that David is the son or Jesus is the son of David and shows the line that he followed in two different ways. And it came from the records. When they wrote that, anybody could have gone to those records and said, yep, and if it wasn't true, somebody would have said, uh-uh, yeah, this, is, this doesn't follow you. This is, not, this is not a true genealogy. He's the last person who can prove their lineage to David because the records are gone. And he is king. He came into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry saying, I am king. The people recognized him as king. And then he died, but he was raised again, so he has not died again. So he is that perpetual king that sits on the throne of David. And this is, so you're right, it's both ways. For us as Christians that recognize Jesus as Messiah, it was a Messianic prophecy saying the Messiah is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne forever. From their perspective, they're looking for another king in the line of David to come and then another line to come and then another one and another one because they're thinking in human terms you know he might live to be 100 and then he's going to die and the next one's got to take over and then the next one's got to take over so yes it's both it's both ways on that you're we do read into it as christians that jesus is that messiah and he's the perpetual son sitting on the throne and will be the king the king of kings and the lord of lords um is the Maranatha come quick, you know, the king who's come. So we have that process. And here is Abijah standing up on the hillside trying to remind them. And he's trying to encourage them, you know, you guys have rebelled, come back. Before we go to war anymore, you guys are in rebellion against the true and rightful king. And he's taking on divine right of the king and saying, you have rebelled against me, come back. Then he goes in there and it says, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, has risen up and has rebelled against his Lord. In other words, you're following somebody who is rebellious. You know, don't, don't follow this rebel. 
Now, this rebel has been their king for 18 years, so they're not going to listen too, too much to this, to this story. I do have to bring this up. Remember that it said that Rehoboam ruled for 17 years, and Jeroboam in the 18th year, Abijah came to reign. This is one of those places where people say, see, we've got an error in the Bible. And we're going to explain that error for you, just so you can be able to explain it. Northern and Southern Kingdom uh, told ages in different ways. In the Northern Kingdom, you started out as, as a baby at one years old. You are in your first year of life. When you start your second year, you start your, what we would say you were one year old, they would say you had started your second year. All right. Most of the Asia does the same thing today. You are in your first year, you are one year old. And you get into your second, second in, into your second year, you are two years old. Most of Europe and America, we start, you're zero years old. <laughs> when you have lived a full year, you are one year old. Then you lived your second year, you are two years old. So when it says this, it's mixing the two times up together and saying, yeah, as far as the southern kingdom is concerned, it was in his 18th, uh, he, you're saying he's in his 18th year, we're saying it's in his 17th year. All right, so just to throw that out at you, uh, this is the same thing that is going when people will go and say, well, here's, here's how long this king ran this, uh, and they're going, the math doesn't add up. Well, you've got to make sure you alter it for different way of telling time. And this is the same thing when you, when you meet somebody from Asia and they tell you how old they, they are and then they tell you here they were born and you're going, hold it, that doesn't add up. Because uh, this happened to us a while back. We, we were friends with a, an exchange student from Korea and she kept telling everybody she was 16 years old and her birthday by our standards was that she was 15 years old. But by the way she was trained to think, she was 16 years old. And then she would tell you, this is my birthday. So it was, made things difficult for us, and it made things difficult for her. Because she was absolutely sure she's 16 years old. But by ours, we go, well, no, you were born this year. <laughs> and we subtract these numbers, and this is how old you are. She go, and it, it didn't make sense to her, and it didn't make sense to us. And I actually had to do some study on it to find out that that's how they tell time, more the way the Northern Kingdom recorded time and age. So just to throw that out, kind of a minuscule thing, but if you ever talk to somebody, these are the kind of things people go, see, the Bible's an error. And yet it's not that hard to explain these type of errors, <laughs> supposed errors. Okay, back to where we're at. He <laughs> uh, says, you're following a rebel. And then it says in verse 7, and they, these are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, that have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted and could not withstand him. So he says, he has wrapped himself with vain, empty people. In other words, bad guys. <laughs> All right? And then sons of Belial, which are sons of the devils, or bad, bad people. Uh, if you remember when Naboth was accused of, of, uh, of cursing God, what had happened is Jezebel had hired two sons of Belial, it says, to lie. And give, and give perjury to him because you needed two witnesses that said the same thing to commit, to commit somebody to capital punishment. 
So these two guys that were willing to lie and perjure themselves for the money that they got from Jezebel committed this. And he says, these are the type of people that Jeroboam has, has gathered. He's you know, basically saying he's gathered together the scum of the earth. <laughs> uh, all these bad guys. And, you know, and that's his you know, thing. He goes, and then he says, and he also rebelled against Rehoboam when he was young and tender-hearted and could not withstand, withstand himself. In other words, he was just getting his kingdom started. He was a kid. Yeah, he was a 40-year-old kid when he started. But <laughs> I was going to say, was he ever young and tender-hearted? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know how tender-hearted he was, but this is his excuse. Yeah. You know, the part that he has just got his kingdom is true. And most kings and everybody are most susceptible to being overthrown when they first start because they don't have the organization, they don't have their, their spies in place, they don't have, you know, who they can trust in place. And so this is a problem. And he's pointing out, yeah, he rebelled against him when he first started. Now, if, if, Jer- if Rehoboam had been listening to his counselors, he would never have had this happen because he would have reduced the taxes and the people wouldn't have rebelled. But as God told him, it was God's plan for this to happen because of the sins of Solomon. And again, Solomon's sin caused the kingdom to split and Rehoboam's sins in leaving Israel led to war for, for his lifetime. And this is the problem that sin has consequences and for national sin, the leader's sins have consequences to the nation. And we're even seeing that in our country as we go forward. Our country started as a Christian nation with godly decisions in most of the, in much of what was going on. And God blessed this country, made us the number one country for sending out missionaries, gave us great, great wealth and everything. And over the years, we have basically, for the most part, elected sons of Baal, <laughs> To the, to the office, to offices. And people go, well, there wasn't any good choices. You're right, I agree with you. Most of the time, there isn't any good choice. So we need to, we need to vote for the, the least offensive uh, son of Belial that's <laughs> available to you, to us, or do a write-in vote for somebody who is godly. But the very fact that we allow ungodly people to even run is a statement of, that should concern us because if we were to go out, as Christians especially, according to every survey, Christians are supposed to outnumber everybody else in America still to this day. And yet Christians do not vote with a godly conscience. And we get some real dumb candidates coming in because of that. And we need to, we read, we need to wake up. And I can't tell you who to vote for on anything when it's time to vote, but open your Bible and see how these people match up. Do they have godly character and consistent stands. Now I know it is really tough because they lie to us all the time and they'll say one thing and do another. But if we do our research, what have they voted for? What have they done? What what are they really truly doing? But that means that we have to study. We have to plan and organize our thoughts on this stuff. So off off my kick about that. <laughs> but he's saying you're going after the wrong, huh? I thought we went to yeah, but it is. But I want my point is though on this, we need to stay. We need to focus that our Christianity is true in all aspects of our life, and this is something we must understand. God does not break up the world between the spiritual stuff and the secular stuff. If my Christianity isn't applied in my 
day-to-day walk on what people would say is secular, then it's not real. And this should affect the way I vote, the way I act, the way I do everything in my life gets affected by what God says. And otherwise, there's consequences to it. Deep consequences, especially for our leaders. And we've been seeing this happen over the time, and it happened here. And then it says, you attacked him when he was young and tender-hearted and could not withstand, withstand them. Now, again, he made dumb, dumb statements. And then verse 8, and now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, and you be a great multitude. There are with you golden calves that Jeroboam has made you of gods. So here he's now kicking in the spiritual side of things, supposedly. All right? You are attacking the one that God has ordained. Oh, and by the way, you've got your, your golden calf gods with you. <laughs> so he's starting to try to look godly. He's putting a godly garment on. And this came from Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam, when he re- humbled himself and he honored, apparently honored God and had the temple going on and, and the priests were, were supported and all these other things. But there was no real life behind what was going on. And this has been the problem with most of the Jewish people for all their time. Most of it is just show, just tradition. And the sad thing is for many Christians, Christianity becomes the same thing. It's just show, just tradition. Well, I go to church every Sunday. You mean that's not enough for me to be godly? Well, okay, I read my Bible every day. I'm, granted, I'm only reading it for three minutes, but I read my Bible every day. Oh, that's not enough? Okay, I, 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 said, three, I said three prayers every day with my meals. Oh, that wasn't it, you know, you know, and they keep wanting to add these works and show people how godly they are. And all it is is window dressing. And this is uh, Abijah's way of saying it's all window dressing. Hey, we still have the, God promised that I was going to be king because I'm of the seed of David. He promised that we're, we're going to be honored because look at this, we have the Levites in the temple. You know, who you got? You've got those golden calves out there. You're going to lose just because you have golden calves out there and you're not, and you're not following God and you're going against the, the leaders that God ordained. Now, if he really believed this, it would have been very valuable because if he truly believed that he was following God, he would have done things a lot different than he did and followed God wholeheartedly. And then he goes in verse 9, Have you not cast out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, and have made priests after the manner of the nations of other lands? So he goes, huh, you, you exiled the priest. Now if you remember from last chapter, technically they did not exile the priest. It said that when Jeroboam made golden calf worship the, the way of the land and he put his own priest in their places, they left. They went to Jerusalem. All right, if you're, we want to worship God, and if you're not going to worship God, we're leaving. And they went to Jerusalem just as Jeroboam was afraid would happen, that people would want to worship God, and they'd go to the southern kingdom. And we remember, they weren't the only ones that went. Other people who wanted to follow God left the northern kingdom and came to, came to the southern kingdom because 
of Rehoboam's sinful action of becoming golden calf worship. And they're going, no, we can't do this. We're, we're leaving. And they left. And here, here is Abijah kind of twisting it. And this is what happens in the world. The world will twist what happens to make things look different. And going, you kicked these priests out of your country, and now we've got them, and they're on our side. Well, no, they did things that encouraged them to leave, but they didn't tell them to leave. And so he's kind of twisting the truth a little bit. But this is what Satan does. Satan does not come to us and say outright bald-faced lies. He twists the truth into a lie. And there's just enough truth in his lie to make people believe that what he's saying is true. And those are the times, I hate to say it, those are the best kind of lies because there's enough truth in it that people actually believe it. If you're going to lie, it has to be believable. So you throw enough truth into it so that people go, well, it kind of almost sounds right because I've, I've heard this before. And he, so here he is. He goes, the priests are gone. The priests have left the northern kingdom, so it sounds right to us. It sounds like maybe we kick them out. And then he goes, interesting, he goes, you, you picked priests like other nations. Whosoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, that he may be priest to them that are no gods. He says, so anybody who came to want to, make, to become a priest, all he had to do is have a bullock and seven rams. Now, I haven't read this anywhere else, but I'm going to believe that this is true. They bought their priesthood and saying, hey, I'm willing, I'm willing to make the offering and, and I'm going to show you that I can kill these animals and offer them to God. Now, the wrong God, but he goes, anybody could buy their priesthood. And this is, again, where are we in our country today with Christianity? We have so many pastors in so many churches that don't believe the Bible, don't teach the Bible, and they're the charlatans. They have somehow bought their position in the churches. And it's scary that people would even go, number one, that these guys would want to be pastors because they don't believe the Bible, and I don't know what they're preaching if they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which I, I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins. So I have no idea what they're teaching. And yet many of them have bought their position. And people are following them. And this is what he's saying. You've got all these priests. They bought their position. They paid for their position. This is one of the problems that led Luther away from the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was selling forgiveness for sin. It didn't have anything to do with Jesus. You, you sinned, you, get, you pay so much money, and you would get an absolution. And Luther said, no, that's wrong. And that was one of the big points that he had a problem with the Catholic Church in his day. You know, pay enough money, you'd get, you'd get forgiveness. And unfortunately, they still do the same thing in many cases. If you pay enough, you'll get forgiven. Hey, gangster, you're a bad, you're a bad gangster, but hey, you've given us a million dollars to build this, build this cathedral and, and the, the, new, the new wing of the education building. You're, you're forgiven. Uh, nothing to do with Jesus. This is what he's talking about. They have bought it. They have bought that position in front of him. And he's saying, you're following guys that are the wrong priest. You're following the wrong gods. You're following a rebellious leader. Now, unfortunately, this is not falling on very 
receptive ears. They're not paying much attention to all of this. And then he goes, but as for us, <laughs> the Lord is our God. Hey, we're still going to the temple. We're still offering our sacrifices. We've got the right priest in place. We are still God's people. Now, that wasn't God's testimony of him, but he's saying we are God's people. And we have the priest who ministered unto the Lord, which are the sons of Aaron and the Levites that wait upon their business. He says, we've got the right priest. We don't have people who have bought their position. The problem is most of these priests were still not very godly. They were performing the duties that they were taught to perform, doing all the things. Most of the priests were also showcasing. Well, my job is, hey, I'm a Levite. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tribe of Aaron. You know, my job is to minister in that temple. That's what God said. You know, that's, you know, that's what was said in the past. Maybe not, they might not even said God. You know, this was assigned to us way back when. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be the ones in the temple. And many of them did not understand their call, their position. They were just serving and doing what it is that they were raised to do. And we really don't understand that idea, but there for years had this whole idea of whatever you were born, you were going to be the rest of your life. All right? I'm born the son of a blacksmith. I'm going to learn how to blacksmith, and I'm going to be a blacksmith. I'm the son of a farmer. I'm going to learn how to farm, and I'm going to be farming the rest of my life. Very few people ever switched careers and America is one of the few places that started this whole thing that you could be whatever you wanted to be. And even in early America, people basically stayed with what their family was. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm you know, a lawyer, a doctor, a farmer, whatever it was, and you could go back generation after generation after generation. These Levites were just raised to be serving in the temple. They knew nothing else, and it was not really a call to them. It was like, I have no choice. I'm a Levite. And on one side, they had no choice. They were a Levite. <laughs> uh, nobody else could be the priest and the, and the Levite. So we have this going on. And then it says in verse 11, And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening the burnt sacrifices, the sweet incense of the showbread, and also the order upon the pure table and the golden stick, and the gold, candlestick of gold and the lamps thereof they burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord, but we have not forsaken him. In other words, we're doing all that we're supposed to do. Every morning they offer a sacrifice. Every night they offer a sacrifice. They go in every month and put the showbread on the, on the altar of the showbread, the table of showbread. They go in, they put the oil in the candlestick, they keep the candlesticks burning. He says, we are doing everything that we were told to do. Note that he's not saying truly that we're following God and we're being obedient to God, but we are doing everything that we were told to do. This is what most people want. And we've talked about this several times. Even amongst Christians, we're saved by grace alone. And then immediately we go, okay, tell me how to please God. What do I have to do to keep my salvation? And we may not do it bluntly, but all of us to some degree or other are looking at what do I need to do to please God? Now, over years, we may finally get it down to, yes, it's all by grace. <laughs> but most people are looking at, well, did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? 
Did I come to church often enough? Did I do whatever, put, put your thing in there? Did I do this often enough? And then what do we do if God doesn't answer a prayer? What could I have done better? God, I just don't understand. You know, did I, did I not do something often enough? Did I forget to do something? I've had that struggle many times. God, did, is there something that I did not do right is why we're not, why something didn't happen, why it's, why it's not been blessed. And I know better. And I still do it every once in a while. So I know most everybody else is doing the same thing. I'm having a bad time. What did I do wrong? Well, you might be serving God and having a hard time. Maybe you did do something wrong. But we, our problem comes down to is we are very works-oriented in our life. All right? Uh, things just aren't going right. What did I do wrong? What did I not, what did I not serve God with? And there is a place where if we're really honestly not obeying him, then we can't expect to be blessed and we can expect punishment and discipline. But just because we're having a hard time does not mean that we've done anything wrong. And Job is our great example of that in the scripture. Daniel is a great picture of that. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You even look at Moses. For the most part, Moses did things right other than his anger. <laughs> he was a very angry man and he suffered because of those anger, anger outbursts. But, you know, Daniel, there's nothing negative said about Daniel, and yet he's thrown into the lion's den. He's, he's uh, got all these other problems going on. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, nothing's bad said about them. Matter of fact, they honor God and stand when they're supposed to be bowing, and they get thrown into a fiery furnace. We have Joseph, who appears to be a godly man, nothing negative said about him, and he's sold into slavery, and then, sold, then commit, convicted of a crime that he didn't do and thrown into prison. And we're going, wow, God, you know, what happened to Joseph? You know, what happened to Daniel? Why, you know, Jeremiah, he preaches God's message and he keeps getting thrown into prison. And so we want to be very careful when we look at this and say, what have I done wrong when something happens to us? Godly people will suffer in this world because we are in an enemy world. This world is not our friend. And if you are friends with this world, there's something wrong. If the world likes you and has no problem with you, you're probably not standing up for God enough. And that doesn't mean we go on and try to make enemies, but it's very easy to make the world mad at you. Go out there and tell them that homosexuality is a sin, adultery is a sin, fornication is a sin, stealing is a sin, lying is a sin, and see how they react. Tell them that there is absolute standards in spite of what you're being told. And God has absolute standards and you'll get attacked big time. And that's a simple one. You know, that's not even saying what they're doing is wrong, but that God has standards. They don't like to hear that because the world is telling them there is no standard. Just if it feels good, do it. The only problem is if everybody's doing what feels good to them, then everybody's in chaos. Because you're not putting others first, and that is what God says, that we put others first, and his laws put others first. And the good news about that is, if everybody put others first, then we would all get a lot of people putting us first. And I love that idea. If I'm putting everybody else first, and you all are putting, putting me first, I got a lot of people making, you know, doing a lot of nice things to me because they're lifting me up, and I'm lifting them up. And so that's a good way to live, even though it sounds totally wrong. <laughs> to the flesh. Well, I'm the most important thing. I need to be I need to be honored. And that's what the world will tell us.
And the only problem is if we're all trying to be number one and being honored, then nobody else, if everybody's trying to be number one, then we have a miserable world to live in. And yet that's the way the world is. I'm number one. Everything's about me. And if it's all for us as godly people making it all about others, then we have a lot of people making me lift it up. Even though I'm not trying, I'm lifting them up. They're lifting me up, and we all end up lifting each other up. That's a great way to live when we think it all the way through. All right? Uh, and then he goes on, we have not forsaken God. We're, we're offering our sacrifices. We've got the priest on there keeping the menorahs lit. We're having them put the showbread on the altar. We have not forsaken God. And by all appearance, they had not forsaken God. But their heart had not followed God. We find out that Rehoboam did not get rid of the idols. Abijah does not get rid of the idols. So they're worshiping God on, on the Sabbath day. Every morning, every evening, they're giving the sacrifices. And in between, they're going and worshiping all the different gods. And here he's going, hey, look at all the good that we're doing. Don't look over there at the bad stuff. Just look at all the good that we're doing. And they were looking at, okay, well, you're not that far removed from us. You've got golden calves. You've got Moloch. You've got Astoras. You've got uh, Baal worship. You've got all these gods you're worshiping as well as the God of, God of Israel. And we need to be careful because this kind of hypocrisy falls into the Christian church a lot. When people look at us and say, well, you say that you're a Christian and you say that that has a special relationship with God, but I'm not seeing you be any different. You're just as angry, you're just as unloving, you're just as manipulative, you're just as, just as bad as we are, and people go, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do, and even worse, I don't want to have anything to do with your God. If your God is not good enough, to, you know, strong enough to change your life, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And unfortunately, I've seen many people that are that way, where you can't, you look at them and they go, they're never happy, they're never loving, they're never kind. You know, and I'm not saying, you know, nobody can always be that way. But you know what I mean. There's certain people, you just look at them, they claim to be Christians, but they don't love the church, they don't love the people around them. They're bitter, they're angry, and I'm not saying they're not saved, but they're not a good representation of God. If we are truly his, then we will love others. We will be forgiven, forgiving, <laughs> not forgiven, but forgiving. We will honor other people. We will be placing others greater than ourselves because that is who God is in us, and he's making those changes. This was not happening in the southern kingdom. Yes, they were doing everything right as far as the exterior worship. Yeah, hey, we're going in every day. We're, got, we're offering our morning sacrifice. We're offering our evening sacrifice. On the Sabbath, we're putting the showbread on the altar. We're making sure that menorah stays lit. We're doing all there is to honor God. Yeah, we're going out and worshiping Moloch and Astaroth and, and Baal and all these other gods, but hey, we're following God. We want to make sure that that's not our lifestyle and that we are truly serving God and lifting him up. And then he, in verse 12 he says, Behold, God himself is with us of our, for our captains and his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you. 
O children of Israel, fight you not against the Lord of your fathers, for we, for you shall not prosper. So he's saying God is on our side. Now the amazing thing is that almost in any battle that has ever been fought over the years, especially if, you know, like the American Civil War, it was very interesting that both the Union and the Confederate armies claimed that God was on their side. He's talking to the, to the northern kingdom who are going to say the same thing. Hey, we're, we're, we're children of Israel too. We, we're going to have God on our side. And he's saying, God is on our side. He is our captain. Don't fight against us because you're going to lose. He is trying to demoralize the northern kingdom through all of, this, all of these statements. And he says, God is our captain and the priest will be sounding the trumpet Trumpets to cry alarm is what it says in the King James, but literally it is to sound the battle cry. So when it was time to go to war, the shofars were going to sound the attack and the priests were going to be the ones announcing this battle. And basically the priests do this so that they're saying God is on our side and he's announcing that he's on our side as we go into battle. So here is... Abijah saying, God is on our side. I'm the, I'm the son of David, so I'm the rightful king. You should be following us. Do not attack. He's also basically telling them the promise of Abraham is on us because we're obeying God. And you are not obeying God, therefore the promise of Abraham is not following, falling on you. I don't think that it was a true statement because neither one of them are following God. And it's an unconditional covenant of David, so God's promise was on them as well. And yet they were constantly battling each other and considering that they were the true descendants of Abraham. They are the true followers of God, and they're going to fight as, as, the, as the rightful heirs. And here he is on this mountain saying, hey, you know, you're on the wrong side, come to me. And this is a civil war. Remember, this is a civil war. This means that they are fighting their brothers, their cousins, their, their uncles. They're related to each other. Far enough down, every one of them is related. And they're battling against each other. In the American Civil War, that if you read anything about their statements, that was one of the things that bothered so many of the soldiers on both sides. That the people they were shooting at were related to them or possibly related to them because they were fellow Americans. And they, that made it even worse for them. They're shooting at a possible cousin, you know, an uncle. They did not know everybody they were shooting at. And, and then they get into the dead and find out that there really were people that was from the other side, especially for that band where, where the Mason-Dixon line formed and the nation split. There were people where families were split on different sides of the line and they had a real hard time with this this is the same thing going here you know hey we're related you know we are brothers going back far enough if nothing else we're we're children of of jacob of israel going back far enough we're related and didn't have to go back very far it's only been a few hundred years eight you know eight six eight hundred years since they'd been leaving egypt and they were totally related, related and con- connected. And now they're fighting each other constantly. 
And thus, up to this point, it's already been 18 years of war, or 17 years of war. And they're going to have another three years under Abijah of war with the northern kingdom. So 20 years of war. That's a pretty long battle. Now, it wasn't constant every single month and every single day, but for 20 years, they're called up for battle. And at this particular time and age, they would go to battle, and it was kind of interesting. You'd plant your spring fields, then you'd go to war. And you'd be at war until it was time to harvest your, harvest your fields, and then there would be a, a, moment, a, a truce basically called, and you'd all go back, harvest your fields, do all the stuff to prepare for the next year. In the winter, you didn't want to go to war because it was raining and muddy and cold. As soon as you planted your, planted your next spring, harvest, uh, sp uh, spring fields, you'd go back to war again. <laughs> this is the way they did it. It was almost a job. It was just it was a pattern. This is why when David had his affair with uh, with uh, Bathsheba, if you remember the way it starts, in the spring, in the time when the kings went to war, David stayed in in Jerusalem. He was not where he was supposed to be because the kings went to war in the springtime, and because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, he ended up in sin. And so all of this is coming down as we go on. He's saying, you all are not going to, you're not, and he just bluntly says, you're not going to prosper. You're attacking the rightful king of Israel. You're not going to win. Now, this is a pretty bold statement because he is not living according to the way God wants. You know, he's in the right ballpark. At least he's letting the priest minister. He's putting a show of, of correct living but he is not worshiping God, or at least he's not only worshiping God. He's worshiping God plus. And this is the problem that many people have is they worship God plus. Uh, I worship God plus I do this. I worship God plus I do this. I worship God plus I do this. And at that point, are we truly worshiping God if it's a worship God plus? And the answer is no. If it's God plus anything, that puts my works involved in it, and it's not pleasing to God. Does that mean I don't do anything? No. I worship God. He comes into me. He changes me, and I serve him just because. Not because it's a God plus, but because I just want to please God. And it's not a, it's not a plus. It's like, God, I just I want to serve you. I want to do when it comes to coming to church, it's not that I have to come to church. I want to come to church. I want to be with the body of Christ. I want to sing praises to God. I want to study his scriptures. I want to be kind and forgiving to people as much as possible. Not because it gets me anything, not because it buys me any brownie points with God, but because he is changing me from the inside, these are the things I want to do. And this is the whole key on this. Everything that Abijah is talking about is all window dressing. We serve God plus we do these other things. And he's not even serving God. You know, his, his plus is we serve God. You know, hey, you're not on the wrong side. We, we are the ones that are, that are appointed. This is the one that God says. And hey, you come against us because God made, made me king and I'm of the Lion of David. You're going you're to lose. 
And his problem was he didn't fully understand what God truly was leading them into doing. And where are we with our life? Do we truly follow God? Do we truly seek God with our heart? And him only. No God plus anything. Uh, and this is the important thing. No God plus church attendance. No God plus Bible reading. No God plus uh, uh, anything. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but they're not a plus to, to help God. God does not need our help. He does not need our money. He does not need us. He is everything at his disposal. I mean, God really doesn't need us. And if you don't believe me, look at what happened to Balaam. Balaam's riding around and his donkey talked to him. All right? God can use a donkey. He can use anybody. Uh, so we have to realize that God uses us. He gives us the pleasure of being used by him. But he could have done anything. What did Jesus say when the Pharisees told him in the triumphant entry? Hey, tell these people to quit saying these things about you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of God and the king. And he said, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. And I think he meant it. I think he meant it. If these people were silent, God would still, the Father would still bring the praise out in the open. And these rocks would, I almost would love to hear have heard that, you know. Okay, you guys all be silent and have the rocks cry out. <laughs> but we need to keep in mind where we're at, what it means to follow God, and seek after him with all of our heart. Because it is all about that. And we really need to understand it is grace and grace alone. There is no grace plus anything else that is going to please God. And when we stand at the beam of seat of Christ, when he puts our works in the fire, anything that is grace plus is going to burn up. Anything I did for the wrong reason, just because I have to serve God, is going to earn me, plus, earn me points, is going to burn up. When it was all what God did through me, I will be rewarded for it. And it will not burn up. It will be, re be the greatest gift that we have. And we just have to fully understand it's grace alone. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to learn and think always that everything is by grace. That there is nothing out there that is grace plus anything. That you love us so much. That you care for us in so many strong ways. And, and that you will give us great blessing because you choose to. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because you say we are forgiven and that you care for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. 
If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.